Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 3rd, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Understanding God's Mystery, will be taught to us by Pastor Mark Yule out of Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. And what we have been studying is Paul's heart for his countrymen and his deep longing to see his fellow Jews come to save in faith in Jesus Christ. God has not rejected the nation of Israel. He hasn't rejected the nation of Israel. There's a believing remnant. Right now there is a temporary hardening, a temporary rejection, but there will come a future restoration. Don't write off anyone. You probably have people in your family and your circle of friends. Man, I've tried to share my faith. I've tried to talk to them about Jesus. Their heart is like stone. Don't write them off. That may be a temporary hardening right now. In God's marvelous plan, there may be a moment that he has set aside for that person to come to faith in Christ. Don't give up on those people. Keep praying. Keep sharing the gospel. Last week, uh, if you were here, you know that um, Ed gave the illustration that chapter 11 is basically a, like a mini-series uh, in that it's got this entire topic that he's going through. And if I had to put one other descriptive word in that illustration, I would use the word mystery. Mystery. Because I think what Paul is presenting is really a, a, a mystery. In fact, he'll use that same word to describe what he's writing about. And there's something about a mystery that just seems to captivate us. You know, if you like to read good mystery, the, the good authors that write mystery know how to create a sense of drama right off the bat. And then through the story, they, they interweave just a small little detail here, another little detail here. Uh, they use different interesting characters. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the mystery, you go, ah, aha, and you discover what was there. I remember it wasn't a book, but do you remember, I'm dating myself now, that Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense? Uh, I see dead people. I won't give it away in case you want to watch it, but there's a moment in time where you finally come to this dramatic discovery moment, and then all of the rest of the movie falls into place. And I think that's really what Paul is doing here at the end of chapter 11. Uh, he's bringing all of these components into, a, uh, into place. And I think that mysteries are compelling because life itself uh, is mysterious in so many ways at so many times. Uh, something can hit us out of the blue. We weren't anticipating, and that sense of drama is, is presented to us. And then all of a sudden, we have all these questions that are swirling through our mind. Where did that come from? How long will this take place? When will this get resolved? Why did this happen? How long? How long? And all of these questions can create a sense of fear and insecurity for us. But then if we listen and if we're observant to the clues, we'll be able to figure out how all these come together. Not right away. Again, like a good mystery, life presents answers most of the time over time. And so this morning I invite you to engage in this mystery 
uh, that Paul is writing to us about the mystery of salvation. And I want us to be on the lookout. We're going to see five clues. So what I'd like to be able to do is take a look at all these components of the mystery and these clues and apply them to the mystery of salvation that Paul is clearly presenting in chapter 11. But then what I'd like to do at the end is pull back the lens and try to see how these same principles apply to each of us individually when we bump into those mysterious times in all of our lives. And then my hope and prayer is that at the end that we will come up with our personal aha moment of discovery. And so it's to that end that I'd like to pray. Would you join me as we start off this? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather in your name. Thank you for the tremendous opportunity to open up your book. And as we just got through singing, Father, all things are from you and you are the authority for life. So Father, we submit to your word right now and would ask that you'd help us to be observant to what's there. God, that we'd be able to ask ourselves, uh, what is the meaning of all this? And Father, that again, through your spirit, that we would find a personal application for each and all of us this morning. And God, again, as, as tremendous as this passage is, we ask that you would be the teacher for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, clue number one is we're going to discover that God's uh, mystery of salvation includes a finite amount of people and time. You know, again, as Ed was talking and as we saw last week, the big theme that Paul's presenting in chapter 11 is he's talking about the, the reality that God's got a plan for all of humankind, uh, for both the Jew and as we saw last week, God's bringing and grafting in, they use this horticultural term of grafting to bring in the Gentiles into this plan of salvation. But God's plan isn't all-inclusive. In other words, not everyone is going to be saved. And it's not going to, this plan isn't going to continue forever. There's a finite timeline that God is working under. And so we see that in verse 25 of chapter 11, as we see this finite amount of people and time that Paul is uh, referring to. He starts off this way, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Jews has come in. Well, Paul starts off with a warning. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. You know, if you were to survey optometrists across the country, they might refer to nearsightedness or farsightedness or astigmatism. But I'm convinced that the greatest eye problem is what Paul mentions here, that so many of us can be wise in our own eyes. He's talking about being proud. He's talking about being puffed up with arrogance. He's talking about just thinking about that which we've been given or that which we think that we might know and having that air of superiority. And Paul's warning us. In fact, this is the third time in chapter 11 alone that he says, I don't want you to be that way. We should never be arrogant about the grace that we've been given. So Paul starts off with a warning, don't be proud. But then also a little insight, don't also, don't be ignorant. And this ignorance is tied to the, the next thing he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the, of the facts of this mystery. 
there's a partial hardening that Paul refers to here. And this partial hardening literally means the, the idea that the ethnic whole of Israel, that there remains a remnant. It's just a partial hardening. This callousness, this stubbornness, this blindness to the salvation plan of God, it's only partial. There's still going to be a remnant, that remaining smaller part of Jewish folks who are going to come to faith and understand who Jesus was as their Messiah. But Paul says, don't, don't let that, don't let, be ignorant of that. There's a finite, smaller number, and this smaller number of Jewish believers is linked to the timing for us Gentiles. Notice how Paul puts it. He said, this partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This phrase, fullness of the Gentiles, it talks about either being complete or crammed full. So there's going to come a point in time when God's plan is complete or when his, his finite number of people is done. Now, think about that. Sometime there's going to be a, a time when God's table and his family is full. I was thinking of like musical chairs, you know, when the, when the music stops, actually when, when the trumpet blows, that's going to be it. And I often thought, wow, I wonder what it would be like to be the last person seated at God's table. I don't know what that would be. But whatever that, that time is, and we're, again, we're never told. We should never think that we know, get proud that we know the time. Only the Father in heaven knows that time. But there will come a point in time when God says, okay, that, that's a wrap. My plan is complete. And that should give us, I think, an extra sense of motivation. Even as Ed was talking about this share series coming up, I think as we start to think about the fact that God's plan is limited in number and time, that should provide a sense of motivation for us to be able to share the truth about the gospel to those that we know and encounter. So with this first clue, just remember that it's the right number at the right time. God's got that. Here's a second clue that our, this plan, this mystery of salvation relies on the deliverer. It's centered squarely on the deliverer. And we read about this in verse 26. And in this way, Paul writes, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their, their sins. Now, there's an interesting, mysterious phrase that starts off verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So here's the dilemma. Does that mean that, that is that, is Paul saying that all of Israel, if, you're, if you've got Jewish blood in you, you're automatically going to be saved? What does Paul mean by all Israel? Now here's where I want to give a little uh, qualifying statement. Not everyone agrees on this particular phrase, this particular verse. There's some really good, smart people on both sides. And that's why, again, this still remains a mystery. But I believe that from Paul's argument, really from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11, 
He's referring to Israel, which is the combination of both Jew and Gentile believers coming together. And again, I think that's what he has in mind when he's talking about this. He, he talks about true Israel. And one writer had, quote, or had it phrased this way, true Israel is determined not by bloodline and not by number, but it's by belief. And again, we've seen Paul emphasize that. And then he says, as it is written, and he pulls from both Isaiah and Jeremiah in the next passage uh, that are written in 26 and 27. We see three things about our deliverer. He will come from Zion. That's the geographic area of greater Israel. Zion is Israel. He will banish ungodliness. That means that he literally, he will turn away or turn back ungodliness from even impacting uh, Jacob, which is again another word for the nation of Israel. And then it says that he will take away their sins. Take away, not temporarily cover over or partially uh, deal with. He will completely cover them over and take them away. He will remove the sin condition for those that believe in him. And again, I think this is the clear message that Paul, in the greater context of the book of Romans, is painting for us. He's saying that our deliverer, Jesus, will take away and remove sin's penalty. The, the 25 cent word for that is justification. It's being declared not guilty. Not because we aren't guilty, we are guilty, but Jesus paid the penalty for our guilt. And as a result of that payment on the cross, he now can say to those of us who believe in him, Jew and Gentile, you're justified. You're declared not guilty. And you're no longer under sin's penalty. But not only that, we've also got the second thing that Romans talks about. We're, we're being removed from sin's power. And again, that's the word sanctification. It, it simply means becoming more and more like Jesus. And again, this is a process. Sanctification doesn't happen all at once. We become more and more like Christ when we do what we got through singing about, when we submit to his authority, when we learn to faithfully obey what he's given us, we become more and more like him. And then the third thing that our deliverer has done is, is, will be to remove sin's very presence. And again, folks, I don't know how much our mind really goes there, but there's gonna come a point in time in heaven, when God, through our deliverer, will remove everything that's been tainted by sin. Yeah, exactly. Amen. And that's going to be a glorious time. That's the glorification. All this, all of this depends upon our deliverer. And that really needs to culminate in what we'll find out at the end of of our time this morning. Well, here's clue number three. God still has the Jews in mind. God still has a plan and still has the Jews in mind. Uh, Again, just like a a great author, uh, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to be interweaving all these different characters, Jews and Gentiles, different timing, different circumstances, and they all come together here in verses 28 and 29. As regards to the gospel, they, referring to the Jews, are enemies for your sake, Gentiles. But as regards election, they, the Jews, 
are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, again, we, we need to understand the big picture. Both Jews and Gentiles are included in Paul's plan of salvation. But for me, this particular wording was harder to come to grips with. I saw the New Living Translation. I thought it did a pretty good job in trying to explain how can Jews be both uh, enemies and beloved by God at the same time or at different times. And here's how the New Living Translation put it. I believe we've got it up on the screen. Yeah. Many of the Jews are now enemies of the good news. That's the gospel. But this has been for your benefit, for God has given his gifts to you Gentiles. Yet the Gentiles are still his chosen people because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the forefathers that uh, the, the ESV refers to. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Friends, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Because when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. When he gives grace, he never has to ask for a gift receipt because he'll never take it back. And when God's call is given, it's never disconnected. We've got a certain to that. So let me give a, just a little bit of warning to those that might, if the, the theological term is uh, replacement theology. And that's the idea that the, the, the church has totally replaced Israel as God's chosen people. I don't think that's true. And I can say that based on the authority from chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. And I think Chuck Swindoll put it well when he phrased it this way. Someday, yet in the future, with Christ as its king... Israel will return to the forefront of God's redemptive plan. Israel will receive all of the covenants and blessings that God has promised and will become the means by which God will bless the whole world. God still has the Jews in mind. And again, to, to, this helps us to, to understand what he's saying here. And he, he goes with this kind of bridge uh, statement, so the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, one of the best gifts that God gives us is the gift of mercy. And that's our next clue. The fourth clue is that God's plan of mystery of salvation extends mercy to the guilty, to those of us, all of us who are disobedient. And I think to really gain a better sense or a deeper appreciation of the salvation that we've received We've got to return time and again to the fact that all of us have been guilty and are in deep need of God's mercy. Here's how Paul puts it, though, in, in, starting in verse 30. For just, a, you, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And if you notice this or make careful observation, you'll notice that for every mention of disobedience, there's an equal mention or weight given to mercy. And they seesaw back and forth. 
first given to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, but he summarized all of it up at the very end when he said, all are in need of mercy. And folks, I don't know if you realize that or if you really understand the significance, but I tried to figure out how to present this. And Mary Beth showed me a, a, a video that I think paints a really good picture of what guilt, mercy, and forgiveness looks like. So I'd like to show you this, this uh, YouTube video that she found for us. So you went and got a marker. You did it for one? Because we wanted to be bad guys. And they were sorry. Are you mad at us? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty upset. Does my daddy got me mad too? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Maybe we should think about what we've done. <laughs> you think thinking about what you've done is going to take away the marker all over your chest? If we take a bus, it will. <laughs> Maybe we are real, and David will, and I get done, and Aiden will. You are officially never allowed to use a marker again. Yeah, but I did the draw. Well, try paper next time. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, aww. Aren't they cute? But aren't they also guilty? You know, that one certainly got all the green marker on his chest. You know, I don't know most of you that I'm looking at right now, uh, but I know this about each and every one of you. When God looks at us, each and every one of us has a green marker all over us. And if we stop to think about it, we would realize that we are so, so guilty and so disobedient. The word talks about just being rebellious, obstinate, stubborn. The fact is, like Romans has told us, we are all guilty. There's not one of us that's not. And when we stop to think about that, we should realize, oh man, we need God's mercy. And again, that's what's promised to us here in, in, in verse 32. We are given mercy. And really, all of that recognition should culminate in our final clue, which is that all of this should generate humble and, could I add, heartfelt praise for what God has done. I can imagine Paul at this point, as he's just stopped to think about the guilt and the mercy and the forgiveness, I can imagine him putting his pen down and saying his aha moment like, whoa, God, what... What have I just written? What is the significance of all this? And he comes up with this glorious statement about who God is. And again, as I try to present, this is where I feel so inadequate. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. It's almost like Paul is just, just totally overcome with the immensity or the measure of God. 
And he searches for ways to express this. And he does it in three ways. He talks about, first of all, you know, the depth of his riches. That's, that's what God possesses. That can't be measured with the best of sonar. You can't plumb those depths. Then he talks about that which God sees clearly. That's the wisdom of God. That's his awareness and perception of, of all things and how it will all work out. That's his wisdom. And then he talks about his judgments or the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are these things? How inscrutable? That means you can't trace it out. And it's as if Paul is saying, I can't even find the words to describe how great our God is. And then in a matching, descending way, he takes those same three uh, areas and puts them in the form of a question. Starting in verse 34, he talks about um, knowledge. For who has known the mind of the Lord? We can never, ever outknow God. Only God has infinite knowledge of every detail of life. Secondly, he asks the question, who has been his counselor? We can never outmaneuver God or give him advice. Can I make a deal with you? I'd like to, to allow all of us the freedom to, to slap the other person if they come up with these four, this four-word stupid phrase. Here it is. If I were God... <laughs> What a silly thing to say. And that's what Paul's saying here. We, we can't outthink or outmaneuver God. Only he knows how all of these things work together. His wisdom and his ways, his methods and his means, his timing is all perfect. And that's beyond our full understanding. And then the third question that he asks, or who, can, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? We can never pay off God. He will never be our debtor. And then he closes with this magnificent declaration of praise in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him, he's the source. Everything finds its way from him and him alone. He is the beginning and the one who is without beginning. He's the creator of all things who needed nothing to create everything. Did you catch that? He's the creator of all things who needed nothing to create everything that we see. And if you were to do a title search on anything around there, trace it back, you'd find God. He alone is the source from him and through him. He's the means of all things. All things happen through him and through him alone. He is the sovereign means, the determining divine mastermind. He is the decider. He determines our paths and his ways and timing are just and altogether pure. He still sits on his throne and nothing comes into our life that he has either caused or allowed to happen. And there are no moves that surprise God. 
from a macro view of the entire universe for all time down to a personal view, God's got this. I was listening to a Chris Tomlin song this morning that said it poetically. He said, God, you hold the stars and my heart in your hand. And that's our God. And finally, to him. He is the ultimate and sole purpose of all things. Life is not egocentric. Don't be so arrogant and proud to think that life revolves around you or even us as as humans. Life is not egocentric. It's theocentric. All of life is about him and will lead to him and point to him. He is the eternal last one without end. And as he was the alpha, so will he be the omega. And finally, to him be the glory forever. Glory talks about the idea of splendor, of magnificence, about a circle of light. It's the glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus, for just a brief moment, peeled back some of his humanity so they could get a glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory. It was magnificent. All of creation will sing of that glory forever. It will never fade. It will never diminish. So I asked myself, so what? I want to give us three so what's of application. The first is I want to invite you to engage in exactly what we just talked about, that you would engage in this mystery with humble, heartfelt praise. We're going to sing two songs right now that will lead us in that direction. And can I ask you, please, this is a pet peeve of mine, please don't use music as the cue to make a quick exit. I want you to engage in this mystery, to think about it, and then to express your heartfelt appreciation for that which our Deliverer, our Savior, has done for us. And then when we're done singing these two songs, I'll come back with a very brief, we'll get you out in time, a brief other two applications that will apply to all of us. But for now, let's express our praise to our magnificent God. Hey, well, let me give you the closing two application points. Not only are we to just engage in this mystery by pouring out our heart in praise, But the second thing I'd encourage you is to remove the mystery of your salvation. That should not be in question at all. If that is, can I invite you to come and meet with these great folks that would love to pray for you, to invite you to just respond to God's mercy and forgiveness and the cleansing that he's provided through our delivered Jesus. Take the mystery out of your salvation. And then finally, folks, these are mysterious times. Our economy is crumbling. Morality is decaying. We're seeing violence uh, seemingly escalate. And all of these things and more can cause us to question, cause us to fear, cause anxiety and insecurity. But let me reflect back on that which we learned about God. God knows every detail. Nothing escapes his notice. He provides a solution. He does have a plan. He's faithful and loving and will not abandon his people nor his promises. God is merciful. Despite the fact that we keep messing up and drawing all over ourselves in a variety of ways, 
God's mercy is new every morning. And finally, God is incomprehensible. He is beyond measure in every way. So the third point would be this. When life gets mysterious, would you trust the one who not only knows the answer, provides the answer, he is our answer alone. As one person said, our mysterious world, we might look at it from our perspective and it seems like life is falling apart from God's perspective. It's falling all in place. So folks, to him be the glory forever. Amen? No. To him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you.